This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. that's the most brilliant thing I've read about reading ever I said well I won't tell Andy but yeah thank you for the thank you for the oh that's nice though so I genuinely want to say thanks very much to everybody for being so nice about the piece that I wrote for Boundless about why I read so much you can find it on the Boundless website but also listeners to this podcast who read it and gave me such amazing feedback that piece was an absolute pig to write (laughs) it was so hard to get right and just before it was published, I nearly, again, this is true, I nearly contacted Katie at Boundless and said, please don't put it out because <laughs> I think it, it doesn't work. I didn't, I didn't get it right. Can you delay it for a week? And then I thought, oh, no, just get it over with. Get it over with. That so is, thank that, you, everyone. You, it's, it's well, great. That is, that's writing, isn't it? It's always that, don't you think? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in Manhattan, on the Upper West Side, in Goldstein's Dairy Restaurant, huddled in a corner with the other old folk, waiting for the blintzes and apple fritters with sour cream the place is famous for. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And joining us today are William Sutcliffe. Hello, William. Hello. William Sutcliffe is the author of 12 novels, including the international bestseller Are You Experienced and The Wall which was shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal. William has written for adults, young adults and children, and his books have been translated into 28 languages. His 2008 novel, Whatever Makes You Happy, strap yourselves in, everybody, has just been filmed by Netflix, starring Patricia Arquette and Angela Bassett, (gasps) (laughs) and will be released on August the 2nd under the title Otherhood. No big deal, right? It's been 10 years on and off, on and off, but now it's on. Uh, His latest novel, The Gifted, The Talented and Me, published by Bloomsbury, was described by the Times as dangerously funny and by The Guardian as refreshingly hilarious. Also joining us today, welcome back, Samantha Ellis. So Samantha Ellis uh, was one of the original guests on very early episodes of Backlisted about the brilliant novel Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me back. it was a seminal episode, that Sylvia Townsend Warner episode. It was kind of the, the beginning of what now people blithely refer to me as that's a kind of backlisted book. Um, but I, and I yeah. do think Lolly Willows was, was, I mean, I certainly found it revelatory. Samantha writes books, plays and films. Her sparkling 2016 play How to Date Feminist has been produced in Poland and Mexico with more productions coming up including there are currently four productions running simultaneously in Germany. I don't know why. (laughs) I'm very happy. That's brilliant. And her reading memoir, How to Be a Heroine, which came out of an argument with her best friend over which literary heroine she liked best, Jane Eyre or Cathy Earnshaw, was published by Chatto in 2014. And her latest book, Take Courage and Bronte and the Art of Life, which I talked about on here. You're the only man not related to me or married to me who's read it. But... <laughs> I, I take that as a challenge. I, I bought a copy, I have it at home. Well, men don't know what they're missing in so many areas of life. Yeah. And in the case of Take Courage, they certainly don't know what they're missing. I really love that book. It's a brilliant book. Uh, Samantha also worked as script editor and writer on the two Paddington movies. I did. <laughs> 
somebody pointed out to me the other day that I hadn't noticed, but that, that slightly uncomfortable coupling uh, of Jeremy Thorpe and uh, Norman, whatever is called, in a very English uh, scandal. It's the same two actors, Hugh Grant it's and... Paddington and Mr Brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> I'll leave it out there. <laughs> My favourite tweet of the last year is Paddington related. And it was when Paddington 2 came out, somebody tweeted, just come out of a screening of Paddington 2. The best bit was when the, an audience member was so caught up in it, they shouted out, run Paddington, you cunt. <laughs> 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 I, I, I don't know if that'll make it into the finished edit. It will, will it? Wait, Come on. Okay. One of my favourite words. Paddington Ooh, is I've a great a, word. Uh, I've, I've got a book for you. Okay, yeah, no, not not it's not out yet, but I'll give you the the sampler. It's Curious History of Sex by Kate Lister. There's a, a nasty. A there's a whole months. chapter called "A Nasty Name for a Nasty Thing," and there's a hashtag <laughs> "Team Cunt" apparently, which I it's just... this episode is firing <laughs> off in all directions already. Well, anyway, the book that William and Samantha are here to talk to us about today is "The Prince of West End Avenue," the first novel by Alan Eisler, originally published by independent US publishers Bridgeworks Publishing in 1994. It went on to win the National Jewish Book Award, the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Um, but enough already with the introductions. Andy, <laughs> what have you been reading? Okay, so I'm going to talk about a book called Love and Trouble by Claire Deidre. Claire Deidre is an American writer, uh, and um, I first became aware of her work a couple of years ago. She had a piece in the Paris Review, which was an essay about her mixed feelings, and the phrase mixed feelings is right, about um, male filmmakers whose work she loved but whose behaviour was growing increasingly problematic and how one situates the divide between yeah. the work and the person who makes the work. And so I picked up Love and Trouble after reading that essay. That essay is online and if you haven't read it, it's really worth um, going to have a look at. But I hadn't been able to get around to reading uh, Love and Trouble because of all the other things that uh, we have to read on Backlisted. And, um, but as a treat to myself a couple of weeks ago, I thought, well, I'll read it. And it absolutely blew me away. Uh, it's subtitled in the UK, Memoirs of a Former Wild Girl. Uh, in the States, where it was published two years ago, it has a different subtitle. Um, and to my mind, a much better, though perhaps less commercial subtitle. In the States, this book is called Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning. And I think this is the best book that I have read in my current troubled midlife state about midlife. <laughs> and I don't want to say too much that hasn't been written by Claire Deidre and I'm on a, I've got the clock against me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read one bit, say a little bit about the book, and then read another bit. And the thing I'm about to read is my favourite thing that I've read certainly this year and possibly this is the best paragraph that I've read this year and probably for longer than the last year. I'm not building up too much, am I? But it Okay, here we go. So Claire Deidre is in a car and she's in a car with a more successful male writer. How quickly it became real country here. The dark spaces between streetlights grew longer and longer. I leaned my head back, a passenger. I asked him idly if he knew the Iggy Pop song, The Passenger, one of my very favourites. I am the passenger and I ride and I ride. It goes. The passivity of riding and never driving, a fantasy of mine. At home, I always insisted on driving. After all, I knew the way. But I realised all of a sudden that I loved this. I loved being the passenger. I loved having the story writer drive me bossily through the night. I ignored the fact that at home I was so bossy that I wouldn't even let my husband drive. I wouldn't let him let me be the passenger. I couldn't do that at home for some reason. But here among the southern green hills, I loved giving up control. I loved the stars in the countryish darkness. What? replied the writer. No, Iggy Pop. He's pretty bad, right? Sigh. These were my people now that I was a writer. People who didn't understand anything. 
I mean, they understood perfectly the thing I cared most about, books, but basically they were more on level elsewhere. <laughs> now, listeners, that sentiment is so true that no one had ever dared write it down before. Right. I, I can only speak for myself. I've waited decades for any writer to acknowledge the truth of that fact, that if you like music a bit, a lot of the time you're hanging out with people who don't perhaps have the same insane, um, unattractive commitment to it as perhaps you do. But so Claire Deidre, she won me over on page 34 of this book and she, was, and she had me basically captive for the rest of the book. So the book is about midlife it's about getting older it's about sex it's about friendship it's about roman polanski and she wanders around these issues noting things down the structure is opaque but is held together by her eye by her her ability to observe in a quite intense way. So the prose, the intensity of the phrase, it reminded me of Eve Babbitt's. It's a totally different um, uh, attitude, a totally different epoch, but it is a willingness to both acknowledge pain and difficulty and to allow yourself to look bad to the reader and, and to make yourself look great to the reader and be funny about all those things. And, and I really loved how she doesn't draw heavy conclusions. She inhabits the subject for 200 pages and then she withdraws and leaves you to decide what you want to make of it. So I absolutely love this book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm going to read one other very short bit uh, from the end of that same chapter. If you don't like this, this isn't the book for you. She's at a literary festival. My host was a young man who ran a literary series. He was a lovely guy, single-handedly bringing all kinds of authors to Tulsa, and what's more, getting Tulsans to come and see the authors. <laughs> you can get authors to go anywhere, to the ends of the earth, to Tulsa even. It's getting their audience to leave the house that's difficult. <laughs> we were eating burritos and gossiping when he looked at me sadly. I almost didn't even read your book, he said, meaning my yoga memoir. I nodded, immediately understanding. For all his virtues, he was, after all, a guy. He went on. When it came in the mail, I opened the package and I was like, ladybook, he pantomimed, chucking my book over his shoulder into some imaginary pile of unreadable crap. Well, what did I expect? I wrote a book about being a housewife and a mum. As if that weren't enough, my book was a mother-daughter memoir. As if that weren't enough, it dealt with the theme of women's lib. And then I wrapped the whole thing up in yoga, like a scallop wrapped in bacon. <laughs> Sometimes I regretted having written such a very female book. After all, I didn't feel like a lady. I felt more like a 17-year-old boy, horny, sleepy, confused. In fact, I rather wished I were a boy or a man. And why not? The good things come to boys. Male authors don't have to explain why their themes, war or baseball, or anal sex if you're James Salter, <laughs> are important. When female organisers of literary series get a book on a boy topic, they don't throw it over their shoulder with a disparaging guy book, or if they do, they certainly don't mention it to the author later over burritos. I said something soothing and understanding. I'm a lady, after all, and of course I wanted him to like me, and we drank another beer. I went back to my room and lay on my bed watching New Girl episodes on my iPad. Lady, lady, lady. I turned off my iPad and shut my eyes. The story writer was so present it was almost as though he was sitting on top of me, like a very literate, slightly rumpled incubus. He wouldn't get off either. All the darkness, all the dirty feelings I've been having, all the longing, all the teen passion, all the loneliness now had somewhere to live inside the dumb disruption of a kiss. And I didn't have to be responsible for it. I was a passenger. So, John, follow that. What have you been reading? Well, it's not a competition, Andy, but um, <laughs> I've been reading a really interesting book translated from the Spanish by an Argentinian writer called Luis uh, Sagasti, who is published by Charco Press, really cool, uh, good independent publisher based in Edinburgh. 
And it's a book that attempts to explain uh, everything, uh, the origins of the world, the history of storytelling, but does it in incredibly light and I think rather brilliant way. Um, it's very, it's a structure, I guess, is to tell lots of very in- interesting and apparently unconnected stories and then pulls them together. It starts with um, a sort of vision of the world. Rather, It reminds me rather of that great book by Carlo Ginsberg about the cheese and the worms, where the, the world is seen as a, this 16th century miller who sees the worm as a ball of cheese with with worms in it that are angels. He sees the ball, the world as a ball of wool, which you can never get to the end of. And wool and storytelling and stars and fireflies, it's called fireflies because the fireflies are kind of are words, but they're also, they're also moments in history. They're also uh, stars in the sky, the, the act of looking up and seeing the stars in the sky. So with my kind of QI hat on of lots of interesting and wonderful stories in the book there's the story of joseph boys the artist and how he was shot down and discovered and saved by uh, uh tartar um uh, tribes people who covered him in felt and, and animal fat and he went on to make a whole art career out of animal fat the there's an amazingly moving story about the man who discovers that he shot down antoine de saint exupere you know i'm the man who killed the little prince and we discover that he self-medicates by going into his room at night and draws endless pictures of lambs so there's as i say that he finds incredibly brilliant ways it, there's the there's conspiracy theories about you know paul mccartney and the the, the beatles there's it's got a little bit of everything in it. There's a brilliant passage I'm just going to read that I like uh, about Wittgenstein that gives you maybe a feeling for the the style of the book. It's it's not a novel in the traditional sense, but it is a kind of sequence of eight philosophical tales. It's exactly the kind of thing that translated presses, I think, should be bringing into English. They do it better than we do. Before and after the war, Wittgenstein sought out solitude and cold, which are different forms of slowness in order to think better. Iceland, Norway on two occasions, a monastery. The limits of Europe are the limits of language. And then he travels to the beginnings of language. He takes up teaching at rural primary schools in Austria. Wittgenstein is a tormented homosexual. Before the war, he falls in love with an English student called David Pinsent. His love is silent. They live like kings in Iceland. Ludwig has not yet renounced his family's wealth. The war awaits them both upon their return from Reykjavik. In 1918, Pinsent dies in an accident in a military plane. Wittgenstein is struck dumb by the news. He dedicates the Tractatus to him and thinks about suicide. In Norway, where he retreats to think, he has the Kant-like habit of leaving his cabin to walk every afternoon. Everything tends to be slower in the cold until it reaches the most crystalline stillness, which is why people walk faster. The breath that freezes as soon as it leaves his mouth, the raw material with which the tongue forms words or whatever remains of language, remnants surrounded by noise and this thing whereof we cannot speak ludwig is this little mouth ghost that surrounds our words in the cold in norway in iceland in the trenches he resembles seraphitus the character from balzac's bizarre novel who lives in northern norway and is neither man nor woman like the shamans who travel to the heaven of the hares in a trance in the extreme cold words emerge stuttering They pile up in the mouth and are expelled one by one, guillotined by the teeth. Words with a kind of dyslexia that goes unnoticed, like seedless grapes, like fireflies in the midday sun. There you go. Where did you hear about that book? Um, I was looking, I was looking about, uh, I was just looking at uh, independent publishers lists Mm. um, and I was sitting in New York. Uh, and they were a they're a publisher that were about to present books, and I it just it leapt out at me just because I, I like the title. It's translated brilliantly, I think, by Fionn Petch. He's a writer. This is his best known. It was it's known as Bellas Artes in Spanish, but it's translated as Fireflies. But it's a great. It seems to me to be a great Sounds translation. Great. Okay, it's time now for an advert. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. 
Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. At Sephora, we know how you love to use makeup, skincare, hair care, and fragrances that work for you, but also how important it is to be in the know about the ingredients that are in them, which is why we created Clean at Sephora, curated products from brands like Merit, Amica, Summer Fridays, and Fleur that have everything you want, minus certain ingredients you might not. Clean at Sephora is only at Sephora. Shop now at Sephora.com. That's right on with the show so we're talking about the prince of western avenue and before i ask the question that we we normally ask on backlisted of our guests i'd just like to say how pleased i was to revisit this book uh i think john felt the same way i I never i'd never read it i was aware of it i was aware it was one of those books that came out of nowhere and was got loads of books of the year mentions and terrific reviews and then i must confess i sort of wondered whether he'd written other ones, which is sort of which he has, but not as many as you might think. It was published in '94 originally, wasn't it? So, and the book, the book was a big deal when it was published. The Prince of West End Avenue by Alan Isler, it, it, it won awards and was widely reviewed and presumably sold pretty well. And what I think is so interesting about doing this book on Backlisted is, I think I had assumed that people would know about it, but when I did some digging, I realised that you know. Even if you're a keen reader of novels and you're 30 years old or younger, you don't know this book. This book's vanished. The, the, there's no discussion of it on the internet after about 1998. Yeah, it's fascinating. Even a book within our memory as readers and booksellers and whatever can, can vanish so, so quickly. Yeah. And Alan Isler himself, he died in 2010. Yeah. Um, so you remember it, presumably. Do you remember it, William, at the time? Yeah, I, I mean, I read it um, shortly after it came out, just because in the little North London Jewish milieu of my upbringing, everybody was reading it, it seemed, at that time. It seemed like an enormous thing. And I read it and just loved it. And um, there was not just the fact that everybody I know reading it. For me as a writer, it was also a really important book, I think. It came out just when I was probably writing my first, maybe my second book, and I've always felt as a writer, I've always felt very influenced by much more by American literature than English mm. literature. And also American Jewish literature has been a big yeah. influence on me. And this book just felt like a guiding star for me, actually. As a writer, I felt like it does everything that I want a book to do. Which, and, you know, only in my wildest and, and dream. And tell us what those things are. Well, <laughs> Okay. All right. I'll go straight. You're going straight in with the difficult well, questions. No, 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 no. Because if people, people who don't know the book, what yeah. is it about the book that, that has the combination? What, what is the, the recipe that you find okay. inspiring? Well, in the, the shortest way of putting it, I suppose, is I love books which are funny and serious. And that sounds simple, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but there's not a do. lot of people that yeah. do it. And yeah. usually when you find a book that's trying to do it, the funny isn't funny or the serious isn't serious. And this is one of those really few books where the funny is probably funny and the serious is properly serious. There's, there's some really great comedy in this book. But when you get down, it's got this really interesting spiral structure. And when you get down to the dramatic heart of the book, my God, it kicks you in the which stomach. Is, which is in the last 10 Well, we, yeah. I, I, hold that because I want to talk about that. I've, I've got questions about the structure of the book and i have experts here who are going to be able to guide me through it so we'll come back to that yeah right. sam when did you first read this book because i know so you've reread it for the podcast I have. yeah so i used to uh, probably about six or seven years after it came out i worked in the sadly now closed joseph's bookstore in temple fortune oh. in north london and we sold copy after copy, copy after yeah. copy of this book and people would come in and ask for it for their book club and whatever and i i had not read it so one day i picked up a copy in the shop i just started reading it in the shop and um i did not do much 
bookselling that day and I was a really terrible bookseller I should just say now um so what, one that I reads. was I did read but um anyway I just sat there and read it and people were coming like yeah right fine yeah whatever give them the cash buy and um, I was just really fascinated by this book and I took it home and I carried on reading it was just you know it does kind of suck you in doesn't it even though and I think a lot of comic novels don't suck you in, actually. A lot of comic novels, you can kind of read a couple of pages, have a laugh and then put down. But because it's kind of motoring, I'm not going to get into the ending book, but it's motoring towards this darkness, I suppose, and this sort of tragic undertow is always there. So actually you can't just kind of go have a laugh and put it down. So I'm going to read the blurb. It's a 15-second blurb, and then William's going to read the beginning of the book so so people can get the the Mm. flavour of where we are and what's happening. So apart from the quotes on the back, the blurb on this edition says... Vintage edition, yeah. Yeah. In the Emma Lazarus retirement home in uptown Manhattan, the Jewish inmates embark on a chaotic, bitchy production of Hamlet. (laughs) That's the blur. <laughs> there it is. To be honest, that's not a bad. Uh, you know, not a bad one. It's, one it's not inaccurate. It's all you need. Not inaccurate. <laughs> I should point out that it's followed by loads of great people saying it's a masterpiece. I think they they're counting on that. The publishers are. Aren't they? We are going to return to some of these people. William, why don't you give us the beginning of the book? <clears throat> okay, here goes. This is how it starts. The last few weeks have not been easy for me. After an absence of 60 years, Magda Damrosch has re-entered my life and my system is in turmoil. I cannot sleep and I'm troubled by constipation. (laughs) How ironic that the release of the psychological mechanism should be accompanied by stoppages in the physical. And of course, there are the headaches, two points of pain that gather behind the temples and converge at the base of the skull. No cause for alarm, however. I shall not die at the Emma Lazarus for want of a laxative and an aspirin. Not for nothing does Benno Hamburger call our little home the Enemon Lazarus. <laughs> this witticism is still making the rounds. No doubt about it, he is a specialist in coprological humour, a man of unbounded cloacal enthusiasms. But what sort of a way is this to begin, for heaven's sake, even to talk of such things? I'm ashamed of myself. First, I should tell you who I am. My name is Otto Corner. Dropping the umlaut over the O was my first concession to America. Yesterday, September 13th, 1978, I celebrated my 83rd birthday at the aforementioned Emma Lazarus, a retirement home on West End Avenue in Manhattan. Eventually, you'll find me just south of Mineola, Long Island, where I will be taking up permanent subterranean residence. Quite a few of my friends are already buried there. Only last week, Adolf Sinsheimer led the motorcade. He was to have been her hamlet. Yes, we have a little theatrical society here. Nothing to boast of, I suppose, by the severe standards of Broadway but good enough. But my subject is not amateur theatricals, it is art, or more accurately, anti-art, in brief, dada. I want to set the historical record straight. For 60 years, I have been harbouring the truth, a private possession, whether out of greed or modesty, I cannot say. But Magda Damrosch has reappeared, and now the truth must out. It groans for expression. If, as a result, my part on the world stage appears inflated, so be it. I might as well tell you that I have been cast as the ghost in Hamlet. There's an irony in that, if one can but sniff it out. We produce only the classics at the Emma Lazarus. Of course, you have to make allowances. Last year, for example, our Juliet was 83 and our Romeo 78. (laughs) But if you used your imagination, it was a smash hit. (laughs) True, on opening night when Romeo killed Tybalt, It was Romeo who fell down and had to be carried down a stretcher from the stage. Look for him now in Mineola. (laughs) That was great. I'd say the Mineola thing is genius because there is an argument that rumbles through the whole book about um, one of the um, the uh, actress playing Ophelia, the woman playing Ophelia, does not want the line about Christian burial because she has a non-Jewish daughter-in-law who's going to deny her the Jewish funeral of her dreams and she doesn't want to be referring to her own non-Jewish burial so she insists that the line about being buried in Mineola and there's this battle over can you do this to Shakespeare can you just put Mineola in the middle (laughs) is Mineola remotely in Denmark no Um, but they still carry on it's brilliant brilliant. should we we should say as well that the book was published in the mid-90s but we have a couple of clips of Alan Eisler, and I apologise in advance, these are slightly hissy, but they're rare too. So 
it took 10 years. The book was written in the 70s and 80s, and then it took 10 years to find a publisher. And it was a really? small... I didn't know a, that. It was a small publisher, really Absolutely. small publisher. Absolutely. And he says... And he, wasn't he was 60 when it was published? Yes. Yeah. He says it basically circulated as Samizdat for 10 <laughs> years. I never knew that. You read that opening, my first thought was, if you were a publisher or an editor, you'd read that, and after two pages, you'd think, I'm in. Yeah. Because it's so authoritative. Yeah. He just does it. Brilliantly, and he was—he taught literature for thirty years, I believe, before he published his first novel. And it's so literate; it's so spot on from the word go. I think just as a writer, you look at those first two pages. It, 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 yeah, it got picked up it, by Penguin, didn't it? I think that was, yeah. that was what made the difference. Uh, yes, I'm told that all the time. It was an advanced age, uh, but um, it is also true that the book was actually written and completed 12 years before that, mm-hmm. uh, when I was a young man of 47, a <laughs> uh, kid. Why didn't you have it published? Well, I would have been happy to have it published. The publishers themselves were reluctant. They sent me the manuscript, or they sent the agent I had, they sent the, the, the manuscript back, uh, full of, of, of uh, high praise, but... Um, this was not the sort of thing that would sell books. You just consider uh, you've got a, uh, a hero who's over 80. Uh, the scene is an old age home. The residents are putting on a classical play. I mean, how is that going to uh, go over in Peoria? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so he says basically that the the book circulated in manuscripts amongst friends and they gave it to other friends and eventually it made its way over to this independent publisher. Bridgeworks. I agree with you. You start reading the book and you feel, well, everything's here. Everything's where it needs to be. The, yeah. the confidence of it is really it, spectacular. It doesn't put a foot wrong, I don't think, at all. It's, you know, you're, from that first page, you're hooked and it's the, the pleasure of reading it is just, it's, it's, it, I mean, it's, and as as you say, William, it, it does that thing that is so rare. It is genuinely funny, but it is also on numbers of occasions. You know that, that there are a couple of solar plexus moments when you it lurches into something that's much darker and more difficult. And the way he sets up the the final revelation at the end, I think, is 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 brilliantly done. And you can tell from the first page that he absolutely knows what he's doing. Yeah. And I think as an example of. First person narration. Yeah. I think it's an absolutely sublime example of that. I mean, it's first person, this bit, it's first person present tense, which is so easy to get wrong, so yeah. hard to do right. And I think what's fantastic about this, and you can see it straight away, is that I think when first person narrative works as a device is when the the narrator is telling you a story, but they're not telling you the story they think they're telling you. Yeah. And you see that there straight away. You get You get a very strong sense that he thinks he's telling you about this really important production of Hamlet and his, um, you know, and his role in Dadaism. But the joke is on him. The, obviously, the authorial voice in a first-person novel is completely absent. It's not there, but it's between the lines of this all the way through the, that kind of ironic distance between the author poking fun at the narrator is there from the very start. He doesn't... He's telling... It's the book... The whole book seems to me about him telling the story he doesn't want to tell. He thinks he's telling you one thing, but because he's traumatised, he's a Holocaust survivor, he's got this other story that he tells against his wishes. And it's so, be- it's so beautifully done that he can't and not tell it. He dro- drops hints that he's a Holocaust survivor through mm. the book. But it's not until the, the number on the wrist is mentioned, which is you know quite close to the end of the book, that he activates that. You, you've got this sort of gathering sense of, of dread that there is something you know there's a big chunk of his life and the way he mentions you know he's been married twice before both wives were cremated yeah. one by her own choice which you just go oh, <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. and then it just yeah. doesn't nothing gets said about nothing it doesn't get followed up for pages and pages and you're wondering and wondering you know it's really devastating but it's dropped in so lightly i think mm. different reasons picking up pick up on at different points yeah but i, f- I felt like it was there also, there from the get through, and you're waiting, yeah, waiting yeah, yeah, you to find out the same because you you know not just that he's a survivor, and also not just that Other his loved ones aren't. aren't yeah. You also know that the circumstances of it, in some way, he's, he's guilty, yeah. and he's done something that he's ashamed of. 
it's hard to not talk about the structure and it circles back and back and it builds towards that and it's not till the very end that you find out. Also, what I'll say is, uh, in the tradition of uh, dissecting the frog to see how it works, you end up with a dead frog. This is a difficult book to talk about because as soon as you start pulling out the elements to study them separately, you are, of course, doing what he doesn't do in the book so brilliantly, the thing that you, William, Mm. were talking about. This kind of novel works on balance, one paragraph too many yeah. in either direction, and the whole thing starts to, mm. to teeter and fall. You know, if, it, if it's too larky for too long, you, you that go. doesn't work. But then if it gets too intense, what, the, for me, one of the things that's so brilliant about the book is the narrator's, the balance that he has to strike between the narrator's unwillingness to tell you the thing he doesn't want to tell you and the demands of the narrative pushing that information towards the reader, right? Mm. So that so that there's a dance going on for the whole book about being you knowing something is coming, but it doesn't come until really no, no. late. But it, it, it's, I mean, it's doubly clever or even tri- trebly clever because... The, the apparent narrative of the book, which is the working on the production of Hamlet, which is what you you come back to that the progress of that the the, the difficult progress of that it's not straightforward. But the the whole structure of the book also kind of uh, reflects the structure of Hamlet, the play. You know, there's a kind of that that, that, mm, yeah. that going towards the the darkness at the end of Hamlet and the revelations at the end of Hamlet and all's ill about my heart, which you know that that, that kind of the I so I'm I it's I, I think you could teach structure fictional structure from this book. I mean I think if you were, you know if you were a creative writing student you yeah. could learn and then, which makes it even more ironic that <laughs> publishers those fools yet again you know are, are caught with their pants down not not spotting a masterpiece when it when it but, sits in front of you. You know what else you're saying about the structure of Hamlet what's real genius about it is on the one hand yes it reflects the structure of Hamlet but on the other at the same time, what it does, it turns Hamlet inside out. Yeah. In that what Hamlet is, is a tragedy with a sort of comedy inside it. Yeah. You've got the story about him and the play. The epigraph comes from Hamlet talking to the players yeah. and the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern subplot, which, as Tom Stoppard demonstrated, you take two steps to the left, look at a tragedy from a different angle, and it's a comedy. A comedy, yeah. And uh, in, yeah, did I say that? in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they're dead. So what you have in Hamlet, if you accept that that's a tragedy, with a comedy hidden inside it. This is a comedy with a tragedy hidden inside it. And that he thinks he's telling a comedy about a production of Hamlet, the tragedy, yeah. but inside it all is this Holocaust story that comes back in his, his, the, the family. And the, the Hamlet references go all the way through it. They're on the first page of things. He's got a headache. It says, two points of pain going to the base of my skull. And like all good books, they kind of drop crumbs for you on a first <laughs> reading that you can only pick up on your yeah. way back on a second reading. Yeah. Hamlet, the skull, he gets cast as the grave digger, the famous scene with the skull, in which obviously it's Hamlet digging up the skull of the jester who used yeah. to entertain him as a child, tragedy, comedy, yeah. all together. And the two points of pain, obviously, is a reference to the, the people he's grieving for. Yeah. I won't, we won't say more about exactly what. So the detail, no, the no, detail it's, it's, is it's, right there, everything. As you say, the narrator's great, but he, you can tell the other thing I think that he, he obviously loves is there's Mozart opera there's a, a beautiful passage I think about his I sort of feel he's burying his own aesthetic into this paragraph to what may we attribute the grandeur of the marriage of Figaro to genius of course and to the happy conflux in time and place of two such sensibilities but to say so much is to explain without explaining what precisely did genius and conflux achieve into the familiar form of opera buffa and the earlier plot stuff for you, Andy, of Commedia dell'arte, with its lords who made sexual advances toward girls of humbler stations, these two amorous klutzes, Mozart and Ponte, injected the serum of recognisable human experience and emotion. The comic material is subordinated to sharply realised characters, defined in part by Ponte and in part by individual tone and richness of Mozart's music. Here is the unexpected irony, the unfathomable paradox. To achieve grandeur, Art must descend to the level of palpitating humanity. Obversely, to achieve grandeur, palpitating humanity must ascend to the level of art. (laughs) 
It's pretty good. It's, it's also, can I say, as a as a playwright, he's so good at theatre. Yeah. Like there's so many bits, like there's a bit where um, he's become the director and he walks into the room and the chair, the director's chair, someone's sitting in it and he knows it's a test. You know, he knows they're going to be wondering about his authority and he goes over decisively and sits in another chair and someone says, the chair the director sits in is the director's chair. And he's like, <laughs> I just feel like I've been in that rehearsal room. And then there's a whole, he discovers the notes from the previous director, who's sadly in yeah. Mineola. And um, one of the things is, what are we going to do about the sword fights? You know, they're all like 100 years old. <laughs> Maybe we could have it in silhouette with some, you know, young actors of, or some people from a local fencing club doing it in silhouette. He's <laughs> just going, it's brilliant. Anyway, I've just got, sorry, a little section. I wasn't even going to read this, but I just remember this. So his friend Bloom is playing Claudius. Um, Claudius is, to my understanding, fully human. Bloom's acting style, I would guess, is that of the Yiddish theatre in its most primitive days. He struts about or stands on stage, gnashing his teeth and twirling his moustache. Today, I lashed him with Hamlet's advice to the players. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action. I should do it again? Again. Have you heard the argument? Is there no offence in it? Int. Is there no offence? Int. Is there no offence? Int, okay now? You're sawing the air for pity's sake. You almost slapped Lottie in the face. Oi, vey mir, is there no offence? Int. Offence is the emphatic word, not int. How many times, Bloom? How many times? A little patience corner. The man is doing his best. Thank you. When it's time to break, I will know it. I've got to go to the little girl's room, whined Ladavidovitz. You wouldn't want I should disgrace myself in front of everyone. Me too, said Vitkoa. The little girl's room's at Hamburg. You know what I mean, Benno, said Vitkoa. I've got to go real bad. I threw up my hands. <laughs> it's just the sort of the madness of the rehearsal room and the sort of the bitchiness. You know, I mean, as well as everyone coming together to make a beautiful thing, which is does happen there's also this kind of you know everyone's sort of trying to get one over on something else everyone's trying to get mm. the right chair and he gets all of that it's and beautiful. Goldstein's, Goldstein's restaurant where they all go and have these fant- fabulous sandwiches yes. that are all named after Barbara Streisand's we'll, Barbara come, we'll <laughs> come back to the delicatessen <laughs> just as a reminder that people are listening to Backlisted this novel was enthusiastically reviewed by Anita Brookner <laughs> And um, I was so happy. Brookner bonus, everyone. Brookner bonus. I went into the basement of the London Library because the review isn't available online and it's not been republished since it was first printed in the Dedication, Unbelievable. So I'm just going to read a little bit of Anita Brookner's review and then get our guest's reaction to it. (laughs) It starts... Since new talent invariably comes garlanded with pre-publication encomia, the potential reader is advised to adopt an attitude of caution. (laughs) (laughs) That's the opening line. Fans. Alan Eisler's novel, first published in America, has been compared with the works of Isaac Bashevis Singer and Saul Bellow. Cynthia Ozick has added her commendation. Can it possibly live up to such praise? It can. It does. The comparisons are not odious, but they are very slightly wide of the mark. Singer is a mystic. Bellow, an intellectual ruminant. Eisler is a sharp-witted novelist who knows how to beguile his readers and also how to lay traps for them. Um, And then I'm just going to read her final paragraph because it's so wonderfully (laughs) Brucknerish. This is an excellent novel, not merely because every sentence is alive, but because the reader might be persuaded that what is on offer is a mere comedy of manners. In fact, Isaac is several steps ahead of that reader on all counts, and it is his craft that one finally salutes. All that is known of the author is that he is English by birth, that he moved to America when he was 18 years old, that he has taught at Queen's College in New York, that he is 60 years old, and that this is his first novel. The good news is that he is working on another. His remarkable debut is a cause for congratulation not only for the author, but for the small American press which originally published him and for Jonathan Cape for buying the book and bringing it out in trade paperback. All in all, a distinguished and creditable enterprise and a reminder that big money is not necessarily a guide to the production of excellent work. (laughs) 
here, here. I just think it snuck under the wire. I think as a review, she's saying that she likes it and that it's good, but it does seem a bit mealy-mouthed to me. It seems to me it's not enough. From the oh, first no. line, it's mealy-mouthed. It seems to me like she's missing the point in a way. Mm. I think the book is I think the book is above all of that. I think it's <laughs> I think there's a tendency actually with the first novel to say, isn't this great? What will they do next? And sadly, he really didn't actually do much next. He did publish other novels, and I have tried, and I love this book, and I've tried his other books, and they're similar, but so much not nearly as good that I don't want him to spoil the memory of this one. I haven't really finished mm. his other books; they haven't done it for me. But this is enough, you know. It's a first novel, but it doesn't have to be the start of a career. He was an old man. This single one book is enough in a way that. You know, To Kill a Mockingbird is enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, the yeah. Graduate is enough. There's no shame in being a one-hit wonder. This is a stone-cold masterpiece, and he did it on his own, and that's enough for me. I like Bruckner's... The specific thing I like in that review, apart from the very uh, cor- the correctness of the language, which is, of course, the thing that I love about her work, is the idea that you take it as a comedy at your own risk. And we're going to hear another review later in the programme, which (laughs) isn't as positive but makes a similar point. That is the balance between the comedy and the tragedy effective. Now, Will, you said at the top you felt it was. I agree with that. I think think the balance works. But I'd like to ask... Um, Sam about the whether it works right to the end of the book so the structure we've talked we keep coming talking about the structure does the structure work or is it rushed at the end I think the structure works I don't feel it's a rush at the end it's a sort of sucker punch but it kind of needs to be I felt a bit uncomfortable and he's he is compared to Bellows compared to Ross there's something in the way he writes about women I think a lot of the time the men are absurd, but the women are grotesque. I mean, they're all in this old people's home and they're all obsessed with shagging each other and shagging their young and um, physical say, therapist. It's brilliant about, about that. Yes, but I slightly feel that the women are slightly more the butt of the jokes than the men. And, I mean, that made me feel a little bit like there was slightly too much comedy and I wanted to get to where it was going. I could feel it was going somewhere. And I think that was what made me a little bit impatient sometimes. I mean, it's very, I have to say, it's hilarious. I'm not, I laughed out loud a lot but that was a little problem for me I think it's interesting to say that because I think he writes a review of his own book hidden in the middle of the book (laughs) that I spotted where just right near the beginning he's got there's a one of the women in the book is called Grabshite Lottie Grabshite and it says Lottie Grabshite was sporting for rehearsals a new pen in silver filigree a mask of comedy superimposed on a mask of tragedy, hmm. a botched design that from the slightest distance looks like a grinning skull. And I think, <laughs> I think that's him acknowledging it, saying, this is what this book is, are you ready for it? And it is, it's a, almost deliberately botched. He's saying, here's tragedy and comedy and I'm going to put them together in a way that's going to make you feel really uncomfortable. I suppose I think that the men are given a little more humanity than the women and... That doesn't stop me enjoying the book, but it made me want to get beyond some of the humour to get to where it was. I felt it was going. I thought the sexual stuff in the book was very well done, except for the problem that you said. I mean, after there's a grotesque description of of the, of the second wife, Oof, the, ouch, the, the yes. Contessa, and it's quite hard to move that. <laughs> from your head when you're mm. dealing with it. Although he does his best to sort of say she was incredibly generous and leaves him everything. And Yes, it's slightly to... sour. They're going to, on their honeymoon, and he assumes there's not going to be, be any, any action. Sex, she's... And she's all sort of assuming there is. Well, if I was getting married I mean, on my honeymoon, I, you know, that is a fair assumption. But he, yeah, but I think... <laughs> he's, good, he's good on the, way, the waning of the male libido. Yes. And there's lots of There's lots of very good stuff in that and, and very... Yes unbellow unrothian i think i think it may be one or two places it's it's too ripe and it's very moving i think that it's incredibly poignant and moving i think there's another hamlet connection here which is interesting if you say that hamlet is a tragedy of inaction yeah it's Mm. about a paralyzed man who can't do it i think in some ways this is a comedy of inaction (laughs) the subject being sex yeah Mm. this is about how he's 83 years old and i'm not sure he gets laid in the entire book it's about the failure 
of his sexual relationships. Well, and it's about his, his early uh, his early deflowering at the hands of the the, the, the uncomplicated mini, the uncomplicated <laughs> waitress. In, in but it's Zurich. all about it's all about what he can't do. And what's brilliant about it, in a sort of Hamlety way, is it's in the two narratives in the two time frames of the contemporary time frame, it's played for laughs, and in the past time frame, obviously being a Jew in nineteen thirties, it's played for tragedy. Mm. And in exactly the same way that in Hamlet, you have the yeah, deaths. The deaths of Hamlet and Gertrude and Ophelia are tragic. And the death of Rosencrantz and Gunstone is a joke. Yeah. So you can play the same thing for laughs for tragedy. And his, his inaction, his inability to act, that's what makes it so emotionally devastating, I think. He makes it into a brilliant farce. And then exactly the same trait in his character is, yeah. is I'd like to tragic. Read, I'd like to read another excerpt from a positive review. And what I think is interesting about this is um, the reviewer could almost be talking about a different book. <laughs> and this was by Rachel Cusk oh, in 1995. And she ended her review by saying, The Prince of West End Avenue is an elegant, moving and well-raised book and an exceptionally and enviably good first novel. There is a great deal to be said for producing a first novel in middle age rather than youth. Many of the qualities, composure, poise, erudition, experience, so frequently absent from first novels, are brought to Eisler's writing, while the self-delight, the over-consciousness of language, the mechanisms of fiction not yet skillfully concealed, remain. Now, I think it's fascinating that Rachel Cusk, there's, she, I, I, I think I'm right in saying in her review she doesn't mention the humour of it at all. <laughs> <laughs> that she's not interested in the humour as a reviewer, that its qualities are, are, are to be found elsewhere. I'm not saying she's right or wrong, yeah. but I, I think what's interesting is the way that the book can be interpreted. It doesn't have to be interpreted as a comedy of manners yes. in the way that Bruton suggests. Exactly, it can yeah. be interpreted as something much darker yeah. from the off. And I think also um, one thing about him being an older writer and an older narrator looking back on his life is that there's a tenderness and also a sense of his own we talked about guilt a little bit a little a sense of his own guilt when he talks about his past as a young man that if it was a young man writing about a young man in the midst of it all there might be more self-justification more bluster more blood you know there's none of that he he knows he knows he he didn't behave well, I suppose. And it's a long time to think about it in various ways, you know, and including towards his first wife, that sort of the story of their marriage is is, is, is going to haunt me. And mm. it haunted me when I first read it and it's going to now haunt mm. me again. It's, 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 a, it's, it's very, very powerful. It's very devast it's devastating. And his survival strategy is interesting, I think, yes. as well, which also gives you another insight into how the book is structured, that ability to go back into a specific day, this specific time and reconstruct all the details mm. so when the book was published we talked about the book was successful in the year it was published and i want to play another clip now by alan eisler talking about what the effect had been he had been uh, if not retired on the verge of retirement when the book was published and became a success well how do you feel now that you well become so important and famous overnight you know <clears throat> The way you phrase that question makes it very difficult to answer. Uh, Churchill once said of, uh, of Clement Attlee that Attlee was a modest man with much to be modest about. <laughs> I, I am a modest man. With much, it's very hard for me to say how it feels to be so important. Well, you can't deny that you've become uh, famous. Your, your book has been translated into many languages. Yes, I can't deny it. Um, I don't really believe it. I must say I'm very pleased by it, and naturally. Uh, it uh, has far, far exceeded any expectations um, I ever had. Uh, I began with the humble desire simply to be published. You know, it's a, a icing on the cake. I think that's a very interesting in the light of what Rachel Cusk says about a debut as an older writer. Because what I found very interesting as a reader, reading this in my 20s, reading it again in my 30s, and reading it just now again in my late 40s, like all the best books, 
it's a different book hmm. as you age and change as a reader. And one of the things I noticed on this reading as an older person is there's so much event, so much brilliant plot, so much comedy, so many fascinating things about history in it. There's a whole thing going underneath that's easy to not notice, which is I think there's something fascinating about lived experience as a slightly older person that I only noticed on this reading, actually, the way there's this present tense narrative and a past tense narrative. And the way those two things fit together, there's something absolutely fascinating about that, about her lived experience as a slightly older person. You live your life in the present tense. Mm. You don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now. And in a way, that narrative is sort of comic and you're confused in it. And yet at the same time, you're constantly reliving your past. Your past keeps on coming back to you and you relive your own past in the past tense, in a sense. And there's something there about life, regardless of the plot of any of the specifics of that. There's some essence there about what it feels like to be alive and to be a bit older and have just lived experience. And only an older writer could have pulled that off. He's also, he's, he's 83, isn't he? And he's yeah. actually, he's lived through history. And I, one thing I really like is that, so he's met, met Tristan Zara, yeah. and who sort of, he describes kind of having this cowbell and sort of intoning these sort of dreadful the kind of nonsense Dada things. Kind of yeah, events, ghastly, yeah. ghastly things. But he also, um, he's met Lenin in yeah, Zurich. And there's this great moment where he sort of meets Lenin and he sort of tells him all about how he sort of, dreadfully in love with this woman he can't who doesn't care about him he can't find her he doesn't know where she is and she, he's lost her and um lenin basically says look there is important work in the world for a young man like you and take my advice and he goes go over there so like the cabaret voltaire find yourself a pretty girl and then you can do some important work and he goes he's annoyed he's annoyed you know why should i do this and he goes it's an insult like a slap in the face and he goes and that's where he meets the girl again and he goes, do I suppose that Lenin was in Zurich solely to point out to me the Cabaret Voltaire? Of course not. He was to serve the greater purpose on the world's historical stage. But how can I doubt that at that moment our separate purposes were interlinked? Find yourself a pretty girl, said Lenin, not knowing the purpose. And I, not knowing the purpose, entered cabaret voltaire it's just this brilliant mm. thing is like he's because he's lived that long it, history has coincided and collided with his life in lots of ways and if you have a narrator who's 20 you don't know that you don't yeah. know that the person you told your love the bad love life to is going to be lenin you don't know who they're going to be what is the what is yeah. the purpose i don't know this is a hard question to answer of counterpointing the production of hamlet in the present with the Dada very specific scene of the production of the Dada cabaret in the past. You know, I was trying to see if there was something happening with the narrator's attitude towards art, actually. What's, what is sustaining him in his relationship with art? He's, he's naming Dada as something phony, but what is he getting from Shakespeare? I think what anything. He, I think, well, <laughs> I think what he's finding phony about Dada is that, at a moment of world crisis, they're sort of talking nonsense and delighting in it being nonsense, mm. and he finds that irksome and annoying and boring. You know, and what I think he likes about Hamlet is that at a time of not world crisis, you know, when they're all in this luxury old people's home with this sort of dairy restaurant around the corner where they have their cheese fritters and everything. It gives meaning to where they are. And also the doing. narrator knows Hamlet inside out. Yeah. Mm. I think the Hamlet's different from the Dada thing, though. I think it relates to what you were saying before about purpose. There's another bit later in the book where he keeps talking about purpose. What's my purpose? What's my purpose? And I think you mustn't forget, and again, it also relates to what I think you're saying about the female characters in the book. I think you must never forget that he's the first person anti-hero as a narrator and the author is at a lot of points in this book taking the piss out of the character i think mm. and yeah. i think that all this talk, i could be wrong i think all this talk about purpose is actually alan the laughing at this guy and the joke is he constantly thinks his life has meaning and purpose and he's he's, he's always on the periphery of things and he's always trying to inflate his own importance which, and thinking which he's is important. Hamlet, and, which is the, yeah, he's yeah, the character but, of Ham, Hamlet. The, the character of Hamlet is, is self-important and deluded. But the in terms of purpose, the joke is that his life is without... He, he's constantly seeking purpose in his life. 
And it's the classic sort of shrug of Jewish humor because the joke is on him because in a sense, his whole life has been a failure. The whole no central line. event, mm-hmm. yeah, the central event of his life is this other thing when he should have done more to save his family and he didn't. Mm. And he's regretted that all his life. And this is why the character is constantly trying to find some sense of purpose. What's the meaning? What's the purpose? And in the subtext all the way through, the author is saying, he- the joke of your life, mate, is that you messed up and the... And there was no purpose, and we're all scrabbling around for meaning here. He can't. He can't but even solve one. the cross. You know, he can't even solve the clues, the charades that are left to try and point. You know, when he loses, mm. he has the, the the theft of the Rilke letter, which is his most prized possession. He can't solve that without his friends. Mm. So it's like he has real difficulty in understanding. I, I think the Dada thing too, when he he puts the the mannequin on the stage, it, that's very play within a play. Mm. He's doing it yes. in a way that Hamlet okay. is doing yeah. it to humiliate Ophelia. He's doing yes, it to, hum- yes. to humiliate right. Magda. But, of course, it totally backfires because it kind of it's the mm. thing that ends up shocking the Zurich audience mm. much more than any, anything else. So. so this novel, um, and we've talked about certain aspects of it, we've talked about the Jewishness of it, but also it fits into a very particular subgenre. Which are which is novels set in retirement homes. <laughs> <laughs> I made a little list here because I think it's interesting. Paradise Lodge by Nina Stivy. Yep. House Mother Normal. We've read that by Boris Johnson. God, <laughs> God help me. <laughs> B.S. Johnson. Yeah. War Crimes of the Heart by Liz Jensen. That's a no. terrific book. No, Ending either. Up by Kingsley Amis. Read that. Sun City by Torve Janssen. Which is terrific. I book. Sort of republished that one. It's one of the only ones they yeah. haven't republished. And Adam Biles, who was our guest on Backlisted when oh, we yeah. did the Huisman's episode at uh, Shakespeare and Co. in Paris. Adam Biles' novel Feeding Time yeah. is is set in an old people's home. But there's a kind of temptation, I think, with retirement home comedies to make them. Savage, certainly the B.S. Johnson is one of the most savage <laughs> novels you'll ever read. What I like about The Prince of West End Avenue, I think, um, William, is related to something you were saying, is the sense that life is perilous, <laughs> perilously near to the end. Yeah. A, a member of the play will a, drop dead. A tiny accident. You in will your... end up yeah. in, in sickbay uh, when you least expect it. And you might not come out of sick, babe. But yet. I think this is a very Jewish humour thing of teetering on the edge of the abyss. I mean, you know, there's sort of the classic joke about sort of every Jewish festival. What's it about? They killed us. We survived. Let's eat. You know, that is the classic, you know, <laughs> Passover, Rosh Hashanah. You can, you know, go through the whole thing. And, you know, there is that, like, seam that runs through sort of Jewish humour that, you know, we've only just survived. We might not survive again. We've got to make some jokes in the meantime. Otherwise, what... What are we doing? And I think what this novel is really about is survivor guilt. Mm. Yeah. Yes. So that's what it comes down to. And again, one of these things that I only picked up on a subsequent reading of the book, there's a line that just flashes by, and I only noticed it this time around, where he's describing somebody, somebody writes to him from Tel Aviv in 1952, trying to track down the Zurich gang and um, lets him know that Magda Damrosch has died in Auschwitz, which isn't... This isn't his wife. This is the this other character. Mm. And then in a flash, he says, and he was trying to get in touch with me because he was trying to find other survivors from the period. And, and I didn't reply because I didn't consider myself to be one. And, yeah. and it's in the middle of a paragraph. It's Amazing. a subplot. It's not even in the end of a sentence, like I just said. It's somewhere in the middle of a sentence. Brilliant. And it flashes by. And then on this reading, I suddenly thought, yeah, that, that, that's what it's about. He doesn't consider himself to be a survivor. His family died. He feels responsible. And he can never get over it, and it and it haunts him for the rest of his life. And in that sense, he's a walking dead man. That's again, he's a ghost. He's a ghost. He's a ghost. Hamlet is the great play about guilt and not knowing what to do with the guilt that you carry. Also, I think that is the key to the structure. The reason why that revelation comes near the end and is not lingered on is because it's almost like saying to the reader. Here it is. Yeah. This is it. What difference does it make? Not much. You know it. Mm. I've told you it. Mm. I live with it. What does me telling you it difference make to me? Not much. Yes, there's no catharsis. Mm. There's no like, oh, it's all okay because. Because they can't be. Yeah. And I think that's what's really powerful. I mean, that's what the ending does 
leave you with is you there is no answer and I can that it's the same you know yeah, the readiness is all it's, it's the same thing you know there isn't a we don't get it all wrapped up in a boat yeah. and that isn't how art is a way of dealing with you know the the, the fact that he fi- he finds some it may not be catharsis but the production of the play is is a way of dealing with it exactly because yes. you say there's no catharsis in a way there isn't but you have to it's called the emma lazarus home <laughs> when he finally gets to this point of memory last memory he literally falls down in a faint and then he he gets up and he goes to put and performs the play yeah. so that in a sense there's no catharsis you never get over that but you do have to carry on and live your life mm. and for him that, that that's what that's what it is so well, it's not listen, a catharsis, he, he discovers the, a, the eye of hamlet i hamlet prince of, <laughs> prince of Denmark. i would like to thank uh William and Sam for bringing this book in because yeah. I'll tell you why because the life of the book reflects what the book is about that the book was born died and deserves to be born again <laughs> and I really hope this is one of the books we'll that I most up. enjoyed yeah rediscovering through the podcast and I really hope listeners feel sufficiently enthused to to, to go out there and buy it and read it absolute pure pleasure fiction of a story brilliantly told i think so anyway that's all we have time for folks um thanks to william and samantha for wit and insight to our producer nikki birch for top sound skills unto unbound <laughs> for offering us this regular birth in their residential home for the overread <laughs> saying i read too much you can download all 94 of our shows plus follow links clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website backlisted.fm and you can contact us on twitter facebook and boundless and before you do that well you could leave us a review on itunes but as itunes will be obsolete soon perhaps uh, i don't know just send us a postcard or something anyway thanks very much thank you for being there all things being equal we'll be back in a fortnight You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.